following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. This morning we're looking in uh, Numbers chapters 25 through 27. And we will start by reading uh, chapter 25. Numbers 25, starting at verse 1. While Israel lived in Chittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people, uh, the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, Those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, uh, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Um, This chapter, um, when a commentator writes, Uh, This chapter spells out that Israel's sins, like God's mercies, seem new every morning. (laughs) Israel's sins, like God's mercies, seem new every morning. That's kind of been the uh, uh, theme for the series. uh, God's mercies are new every morning. And it seems they're required to be new every morning because Israel just can't stop sinning. And we've seen this over and over again. Uh, and, and maybe uh, we, we could uh, look down on Israel, but the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we would know this is true for us as well, right? 
We need God's mercies new every morning because uh, our sins tend to be new every day. And so the, the book of Numbers really is a powerful picture uh, and reminder of God's amazing grace. And we've seen this over and over again. It just is a amazing, abundant, overflowing grace. As the people of Israel prove repeatedly that they are not worthy of God's blessing and goodness. And yet, uh, every time they sin and rebel, God responds um, uh, with wrath. But, but then there's, there's grace and there's forgiveness and there is blessing. Um, uh, and, and, and so no matter how much Israel sins and rebels, God continues to bless and forgive. Um, and it's, it's kind of like uh, we looked last week at Balaam. And you know, Balaam um, uh, was brought to curse Israel and Balak took him to the top of one mountain to get a kind of one vantage point or one viewpoint. And, and that didn't work. So he went and tried to get a different angle to see a different perspective on Israel. Well, it's almost like that's what, what the author's doing with God's grace. He keeps taking us to these different mountaintops where we can see God's grace from a new angle or perspective. Uh, and that's true when we come to chapter 25 to 27. Uh, we, we get another angle, or, uh, another perspective on God's grace toward Israel. Um, and so uh, we're going to look at from this, this vantage point. Um, and, and what we see from this vantage point is that God's grace not only means that he deals with sin and he forgives, but we see here that God gives this amazing opportunity to start over. So I titled this message, uh, Starting Over. Um, uh, There's an amazing truth here that our sins do not go with us. Is anybody excited about that? Our sins do not go with us. I remember when I was a kid... Uh, we had a farm and we raised all kinds of animals and uh, we had chickens and the chickens would wander around and we also had dogs and uh, dogs like chickens actually not as friends <laughs> as food and so every once in a while you'd get a, a dog that would eat a chicken and kill a chicken and try to eat it and if we caught it early enough the way my, my dad did this is uh, to, to teach the dogs not to eat chickens is he would take the chicken the dead chicken and he would tie it around the dog's neck Right? And so the dog's got this bracelet on for a couple of days carrying around this dead chicken, and it can't, it can't eat it. It just kind of drives the dog crazy. And it works, right? It, it actually works. After that, the dog wants nothing to do with chickens. Keeps his distance, right? Well, um, I'll let you, that picture just linger with you for a while. Uh, so, so uh, you know, some people live their Christian life like this, Right? They think that their sins get kind of tied around their neck and they have to go through life carrying the reminders of their past failures and mistakes. But uh, this passage uh, reminds us that that when when we're forgiven, we start over fresh. And that's what we're going to see in these these chapters. Uh, The past is is gone. It's, 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 It's buried. And we start fresh and new without taking it with us. Another good image is uh, golf. If any of you golf, uh, like real golf, like professionals don't work this way, but in like, like everyday golf, you get this thing called a mulligan, right? And what that means is you swing at the ball once and it goes like completely the wrong direction. Maybe it goes into the lake or something. And it was, it was but you get a, with a mulligan, you get a second chance. You get a start over, you get a new ball, and you get a second chance. You get to try it again. 
Well, uh, that's kind of how it is here. Israel is getting a mulligan, right? It's been a 40-year mulligan because the first generation uh, messed up. But now a new generation has come and they, um, they get a second chance. And as we will see, this does not mean that grace is a license to sin. And we'll see that. Uh, but it teaches us that, that we really do get a second chance to do things differently. And that's uh, what this is about. So t- to really understand these chapters, we need to see it in the context of the whole book. So quick survey of the book. Uh, first ten chapters uh, were preparing uh, to go into the promised land. And they were at Mount Sinai, and God gives some instructions about um, laying out the camp and arranging the camp and how they are to march out. And during the first ten chapters, they take a census, and they count all the people who are um, 20 years and over who can go into battle and fight. Because they are marching out as an army, and the goal is to go into Canaan and um, conquer uh, the Canaanites and take their land as their possession that God had promised to give them. Uh, but then in chapter 11, they head out and they start their march and they're moving forward. And from chapters 11 to 23, what happens is we have these continually repeating cycles of rebellion where the people of Israel grumble and complain and reject ultimately God's plan. And, and the, that generation has the opportunity to go into the promised land and they refuse, right? The spies come back and give a report of the abundance of the land, but also that, that the people there are also abundant and big and, and living in fortified cities. And so that generation says, we will not go. They, they fail to enter by faith and claim God's promise. Um, and so those rebellions happen repeatedly. And over and over again, uh, they complain against Moses and they complain against Aaron. And so it's this uh, 14 chapters of rebellion. Uh, but then in chapter 25, and some people don't know if you put 25 with the middle section or the end section, because it's kind of a transition. As we just read in chapter 25, they're still sinning. <laughs> sinning, and sinning very seriously. I mean, there's some serious rebellion here. Um, but things are changing. And it also marks the sign of the beginning of something new, of a new generation. Um, uh, with the, the plague that destroys 24,000 people, the last remnant of the old generation dies. And so we read in chapter 26, After the plague, the Lord said to Moses uh, and to Eliezer, the son, uh, son of Aaron, Take a census of all the congregation. Okay, so this is a second census. And there's some interesting parallels between the way the book of Numbers begins and the way chapters 25 and on pro- progress. There's some parallels that's important to see. First off, the beginning of the book as well as here, um, things are happening on mountaintops that people aren't aware of. Okay, the first time Moses is on the mountaintop getting instructions from God, and if you remember, they got kind of tired of waiting for 40 days, and so they had a, uh, another idea of, of their own to replace him with a new leader. And uh, if you remember, they also at that time created a new god uh, and they worshipped the golden calf. Well, in this account, uh, preceding it, Balaam has been up on the mountaintops also getting blessings from God. That wasn't why he was hired, but he's up there and they're unaware of how God is blessing them as Balaam's on the mountaintop. Um, In both accounts, uh, that event is followed by uh, the people worshipping idols. 
Okay, the first case, the, calf, uh, the golden calf here, they're, they're worshiping Baal. Um, in both cases, they are saved from God's wrath by the ze- zealous action of those who stand up against sin. first case, it's the Levites. Here it's Phinehas, who is also a descendant of Levi and of Aaron. Uh, and then finally, in each, a, a census is taken to prepare the people for battle and conquest. So all that, all that to say, what's happening here is, is God has set the reset button, right? Uh, God anoints the first generation, he prepares them, they blow it, and now we come to chapter 25, a new generation comes along, and they get to start over, right? They get a, another chance. They are not cursed because of the failures of their parents. They get a mulligan. <laughs> they get a second chance and get to try again. Uh, and it's a great reminder for us for what second chances mean for us as followers of Christ. So let's look uh, at these, these, these three chapters. Uh, again, we're kind of surveying, so we're not going to go in great depth. Um, the first, first chapter, we'll start in, in 25, uh, and we see that um, we get a second chance because God has provided a way to deal with sin. God's provided a means to deal with our past sin and mistakes. Uh, it says, While they're living in Shittim, and the, uh, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They are, they're on the plains of Moab, directly opposite Jericho, near the Jordan River. So they really are literally at the door of the Promised Land. Uh, literally a day's march. A day's march would get them to the Jordan River and, and into the Promised Land. That's how close they are. Right? And in fact, we see later, uh, Moses can go up on a mountain and he can look into the promised land and see it. That's how close they are. Um, but it also means that they're now in a place with a lot more people. They were out in, in the wilderness of Sinai, which was barren and desolate. Now they're kind of more in, in developed countryside. And there's the Moabites and the Midianites living all around them. And that proves to not work out so well for them. Because it says they began uh, that the people, their neighbors, the Moabites and Midianites, invited the people, uh, um, well, first off, to sleep with them, right? It says they began to whore with the the, uh, daughters of Moab. Uh, Literally, the word there is to commit fornication or sexual immorality. Um, And we don't know if these were married or single. It doesn't call it adultery, so, so it could well be that these were young single guys um, going out and, and mixing and intermingling and, and meeting these women who were seducing them and enticing them uh, to have uh, sex with them. Uh, it is a serious sin. But that's not the end of it. right? Uh, once they start committing a, a sexual immorality with these women, then it says that they invited them to uh, celebrate in their religious festivals, worshiping Baal, and so they um, they go to the, this meal, and it's it's a feast, it's a banquet. There's food, and so these guys go to eat, and pretty soon they're eating uh, meat that's being offered to these idols, and that's being served. And they're just like they did at the in their own tabernacle. They're enjoying these fellowship meals in the presence of this uh, foreign idol, Baal foreign God. Uh, and they are soon bowing down in worship. Right? And what's important is this is not just an isolated case. It says that the community, in fact it says in verse 3 that so Israel is a nation. Enough people were doing this that, that uh, God said Israel as a nation yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. 
That's a great picture of the progression of sin. Right? You're enticed to take steps uh, into, into pleasure. And pretty soon you are, you are worshiping false gods. And the end of it is you become yoked. Right? You become captive in bondage to those gods and to those powers and to those people. Uh, and and uh, that's what they had done. Um, so apparently the rebellion thing is not over, right? They're still having problems with sin. And it's, it's on a big enough scale that God holds the nation accountable. And the result of it is that um, God's anger is kindled against Israel and a plague breaks out. Right? A plague breaks out. And, and as we said over and over again, um, God's wrath is, is not that God is petty. It's not that God you know, is easily set off and angered. God's wrath is his right and just response to sin. Right? It's giving people what they deserve as a result of sin. And what we deserve is death. Right? Uh, that's the just and right response to any sin. And so God is not emotional. His anger is not like he's flying off the cuff throwing a temper tantrum. He's just responding, giving what sin deserves, and that is death. And because the whole community is guilty, because at some level the whole community is participating, they're sanctioning it. Right? The community is not standing up saying, stop this. Right? They're letting it happen. And so they're all guilty for what's taking place. And so God's anger breaks out, and as it has happened on many occasions, a plague breaks out and people start to die. Right? And so they, they don't know what to do. So uh, the Lord says to Moses, uh, and apparently they're at the tent of meeting, so we don't, we don't know, but we, we know from past experience when this happened, Moses would fall down before God and seek God. So we can assume Moses is taking that posture, interceding, seeing, seeking how he could um, stop the plague. Now, uh, we saw a few chapters back, if you remember this, uh, uh, Moses, or God, actually reminded Moses of the sacrifices for sins. Right? And there were burnt offerings, there were bulls and rams that could be offered. But if you remember in that description, God made a distinction between deliberate, um, intentional sins and what he called unintentional sins. Well, what they're doing here would be a great example of intentional sin. Like going sleeping with uh, the neighbors right, and worshiping their idol gods... That's like breaking oh, lots of commandments. And it's not an accident, right? It's like, oh, I just didn't know that that was an idol. Right? I mean, they know what they're doing. It's intentional. And Moses said there, and God told Moses, there is no sacrifice. In the regular burnt offerings, there is no burnt offering for intentional sin. Right? So um, when, when Moses starts pleading with God, he's like, what do we do? But I can't just go offer a bull and atone for this sin because there is no regular sacrifice. And so God gives, what's amazing here is God could say, that's right, there is no sacrifice. I am going to let my wrath run its full course until the nation is destroyed because that's what they deserve. But God does not do that. Right? He, he provides a way to turn away his wrath. Uh, it's harsh. Right? He says uh, uh, to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people, take all the chiefs and hang them in the sun before the Lord so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away. Right? 
Now, uh, we don't know how many of these guys were actually participating. It may be that none of them were. But they bear the guilt because they weren't doing anything about it. Right? They were not... And, and this, was, this was apparently on a big enough scale in public and like out in the open enough that it wasn't hidden or secret. They knew what was going on. And the leaders were guilty because they didn't prevent it. And once it happened, they didn't stop it. Right? Uh, they should have been zealous for God's commands and they should have intervened and they should have um, taken action against those who were guilty. But they did nothing. And by doing nothing, they share in the guilt. And so it was right and just for God to call judgment on them and to say, here's, here's how you can stop the plague. Take all the leaders of Israel and hang them. Right? Kill them and put them up, their bodies up on a pole as as a public testimony that this is what happens when you sin against God. Um, so Moses says to the judges, now we don't know if the judges and the, the chiefs are the same group, okay? Uh, the different terms, maybe they're synonymous, maybe not. We don't really know what's going on here. But Moses does not actually um, instruct the people to carry out God's instructions, right? Uh, and maybe Moses hopes... Plan B will also be effective. And plan B is this. He says, say to the judges, he, um, Moses says to the judges, each of you get out there and kill those who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Do something about this. So may, maybe Moses is thinking, look, you guys have dropped the ball. Maybe if you step in now and take action, uh, you, can, you can curb this. You can put aside. Maybe God in his grace will, will relent and will forgive you. Um, I don't know if Moses told them, look, if this doesn't work, plan, we go to plan A, which means you die. I don't know. I don't know maybe, he, maybe they knew that. It would certainly be incentive for them to um, follow through, right? Um, so uh, uh, so, so, so that, that's Moses' plan. But, uh, but notice what actually happens next. Uh, neither plan A or plan B gets, gets uh, carried out. Uh, And the reason is because of the next event. Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Mennonite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation. Um, Talk about uh, blatant, in-your-face, all-out sin. Right? Um, This guy uh, isn't, isn't even hiding it. Right? And it says that the people are gathered weeping at the entrance of the, of the, of the temple, the tent of meeting. They're there um, as people are dying and, and the sin is ravaging the camp. Um, they are pleading before God. And, and as this is all going on, in the midst of this, here comes this guy with this, Midian, this Midianite girl dragging her right through the camp, right? right in the presence of Moses and all the people, and they see it. Um, uh, and, and so it says, Phinehas uh, sees this, right? And it lights him up. It lights him up. Who is Phinehas? He was Aaron's grandson. And Aaron's gone, so now his father, Eleazar, is the priest, uh, the high priest. So he is a priest of, of Israel, Probably a young man uh, certainly was born uh, after, um, you know, after the events of the Exodus. He's a young man, and he is fired up. Right? He is fired up, 
And he goes after this couple, and he grabs a spear, and he follows them into the tent. And I won't go into all the details, but I'll let you use your imagination as he, as he pins these two to the ground, right, uh, in one fatal blow. Um, uh, and it says, it says, thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. Right? Um, because of uh, the zeal and the actions of Phineas, uh, the plague, the anger of God is turned away. Um, and so uh, all the other guilty are spared, right? They don't have to die. Uh, the leaders of Israel are spared. They don't have to die uh, because of Phineas's uh, actions. And you, know, you look at this story and it's, it, it would think, man, this is severe, you know, killing the leaders. Why does God make the leaders pay? Well, they, they, as I said, they were guilty. But it seems so extreme. But, but that's what justice deserved, right? If God was just, he was right and just to take the leaders because of their failure. Certainly what Moses prescribed, killing the guilty, also was, was just. That's what they deserved, right? And we don't know if this was a few dozen or... We don't know. There was apparently a lot of guys that, that God considered the whole community to be guilty. This wasn't an isolated event. This was happening at a large scale. Um, that's what justice deserved. But in the end, what they get is grace, right? In the end... Uh, one guilty couple dies um, because of the zeal of Phinehas. And, and God goes on and he commends what, what Phinehas did. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. He uses that word jealous three times. Okay. Uh, Phineas was jealous with my jealousy, and so I did not consume them in my jealousy. And the word jealous or zealous could be the same word. It's the idea of somebody guarding or protecting or defending what belongs to them. Right, so we think of, uh, especially of a husband who's uh, jealous about his wife. It means he's protecting what is rightfully his and the exclusive nature of a husband-wife relationship. It means if somebody comes along who is too friendly to his wife in a way that's inappropriate, he's jealous. But he guards that relationship because um, it's a relationship that's exclusively his. Not that she's his property, but but she's a special person to him. And and he has a right to guard that relationship jealously. Uh, In Thailand, we have have guards guarding our mubans in our neighborhoods. The epitome of zealousness, right? Well, maybe in my boom bond, maybe not so much, right? It's like pretty much they let everybody in. And uh, there's constantly, you know, um, thefts and robberies. And I don't know what they do. But it's nice to wave at the guys when they come in. They're not zealously guarding because they don't own anything there, right? There's nothing in, in my neighborhood that belongs to them, right? It's just a job for them. Uh, now, if it was their home or their possessions, their treasures... I have a feeling they would guard it more zealously. Right? And that's this picture here. What, 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 guard, what God guards, what he is jealous about, what he guards zealously, passionately, is what? His holiness. Right? His holy character is something to be preserved and protected. 
Not because he's worried about it being stolen or because he's worried about it even being damaged, right? But it is who God is. And he is zealous that people see and understand and uphold uh, his unique character as a holy God. And so he guards it, he protects it, because it was through Israel that he was going to display to the world who he was. The only way this worked is if they upheld God as holy. And by that, it would be a witness to the nations that the God of Israel was unique. And not like Baal, not like the other gods. So God is jealous for his holiness because it is his witness to his creatures, his lost creation that he wants to save. So he cares deeply about it. And so did, uh, thankfully, Phinehas. He cared deeply about God's, God's holiness. And I don't know that he thought what he was going to do was going to curb he, it just ticked him off, right? He was zealous. He was going to guard and protect. Said, How dare you bring this into the camp? And he just reacted. He's like, we're going to deal with this. I don't know about the rest of it. We're going to deal with this, this case right here. And it's going to stop with this couple. This ain't going to happen on my watch. Right? And he puts an end to it. And it was enough to be redemptive. Right? For two reasons. One, because of his own zeal, but also because there was a sacrifice offered. There was the shedding of blood. Well, this time it wasn't a substitute. Like the sacrifices offered a substitute for guilty. In this case, the guilty paid for the, with their own blood. But it was enough to turn away God's wrath. And this really is a great picture of Jesus. Uh, Phineas is a model, a prototype, a shadow of Jesus, Right? Who, who was zealous for his father's glory. And we see the accounts of Jesus going into the temple and turning it upside down and chasing out the money changers. And it said that a zeal for his father's house consumed him. Right? Believe me, if, if uh, anybody was passionate about the holiness and glory of God, it was Jesus. Right? But here's the amazing thing. Um, Instead of picking up the spear and going after the guilty, Jesus allows himself to be pierced in our place. Not because he was less zealous, but because he was a better and perfect sacrifice. He knew that his own life could turn away and would turn away God's wrath from us. So the reason we get a second chance is, is simply this, that God has not given us what we deserve He has given us grace through Jesus. He has given us forgiveness and grace. And He has dealt with our sin and turned away His own wrath through Jesus being pierced instead of that spear piercing through me. Uh, That's why we get a second chance. And that's why Israel got a second chance. Because over and over again, even when Israel sinned intentionally, and, and when there was no bull or goat that could cover it, God provided a way, right? Uh, Phineas had seen this example with his, with his father, uh, Eliezer, and his grandfather, Aaron, and another plague when it broke out. And God provided the, the incense. And God said, take the, uh, the incense burners and go out and stand between the living and the dead. And Aaron and, and, and Eliezer ran out with their burning uh, incense. And, and that atoned. It, it turned away God's wrath. So, um, Phineas had seen this, right? So it is for us. We have grace because Jesus 
atoned for sin and turned away God's wrath. And then the story moves on from there, and it says in verse 20, in chapter 26, verse 1, after the plague, so these are connected. It isn't just random, the author's not just piecing together random fragments of history. They're connected. It says, after the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward. Okay, so I love this. All this happens, and what happens? We go back to chapter 1. Right, this is how the book started. Moses, take a census of those 20 years and upward, upward to find out those who were old enough to go into battle. Oh, this is God's grace. Do you see this? Uh, they've just rebelled. They've done the worst. They have gone back to idolatry. And there's atonement. And God says, okay, starting over. Take a new census. Right? And we find at the end of chapter 26 that... Um, Verse, and I'm not going to read the whole census. Um, if you really, you know, I, you need to go home this afternoon. It's your homework to read. And next week there'll be a quiz on how many people each tribe had. Okay, so you've got to know that. Um, but it ends this way in, in, in verse 63. Those uh, these were listed by Moses. That is in the census. And Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan of Jericho, because that's the second census. But among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron in the first census. Okay, so what we find out is that uh, we have a whole new generation. That last plague of 24,000 wiped out what was left. Okay, we don't know how many were left, but less than 24,000, and they're gone. Right? And this is a new generation, an entirely new people. Everybody's wiped out except three people, Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. Right? Um, they're gone, right? Uh, what's, in this, this uh, census, I'm not going to go through all the details, but there are a couple of unique things in this one when you compare it to the first. Uh, the first thing is that uh, we, get some, we get some commentary, right? And this is the commentary. Uh, verse 5, Reuben, the firstborn of Israel... Okay, that's, that's the listing. The sons of Reuben, Hanok, the clan of the Hanokites, Palu, of the Paluites, Hezron of the Hezronites, Carmi of the Carmites. These are the clans of Reuben. And those listed were 43,730. And the sons of Palu, Eliab, the son of Eliab, Nemuel, Dathan, and Abiram. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron and the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when, they, when that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men and they became a warning. Right, they became a warning. What's interesting is this, this um, census comes with footnotes. Right? And the footnotes are warnings to not repeat the mistakes of the past. So here's a great second lesson. Uh, a second chance is not a second chance to make the same mistake over. All right? a, lot of time, a lot of times we think we get a second chance means our past sins don't matter and we can just repeat them as many times as we want. That's not what a second chance means. Right? Back to the golf illustration. Right? When I used to golf very badly, I would take my mulligan, you know, I'd hit my ball into the water and um, I'd get out my second ball and I'd hit it and it would go in the exact same spot. Right? <laughs> I wasn't learning very well. And that's, not, that's what this is about, right? He says, take warning. 
gets a second chance to do it differently and to do it better. Right? Not to just repeat your mistakes. Um, it means learning something from the pain and loss and terrible consequences of sin. Right? There is forgiveness and grace, but sin also has consequences. And we'll see that with Moses in a second. Right? Uh, repentance is not just feeling sorry about our mistakes or feeling embarrassed that we got caught or how sin makes us look bad. Right? A lot of times we do feel bad because it is embarrassing to see how sinful we are. But that's not what repentance is about. Repentance is ultimately about turning away from that path and choosing a new and different path, walking down a new course. Um, the Israelites fell into idolatry uh, with Baal of Peor because they made close friends with the world. Okay? Um, are we making... Uh, well, here's a question. Who are we making friends with? Are we like Phineas? Are we making friends with God? And are we zealous and passionate about his holiness? Or are we too busy making friends with the world? Now, making friends with the world is, is not necessarily sin. But it's amazing how they started making friends with the Moabites. And pretty soon they were sleeping with them and worshiping their gods. Right? We have to be careful what we make friends with. right? What we attach ourselves to where we spend our time, who we hang out with, and what we hang out with. Because if you hang out too much in the wrong places and with the wrong people, it does lead to sin. Right? Your mom is right. <laughs> Listen to your mom. Right? Be careful who you hang out with and the choices you make about what you, what you befriend. Because those friendships can easily lead you into sin and bondage through our friendship with the world. So starting over only works if we're determined to live in a different direction, if we make different friendships, if we decide to take seriously the holiness of God and his glory and make that the priority of our life um, and set our affections on that. Uh, there's another thing that the genealogy t teaches us, though. Oh, no, no, I, I missed the point. Not yet. We're not there yet. Um, uh, it, it does teach us. The genealogy teaches us this, that we need to put to death the old man. Okay, this is a great picture that they could not move into the promised land as long as the old generation was still there. Right? So they had to spend 38 extra years in the desert waiting for that old, de the old generation to be put to death, to die. Right? Um, it's a great picture of, of our life in Christ. Right? We will never walk into this new path of righteousness and holiness and the promise and blessing of God until we put to, to death our old man, our old self, the old me. So Colossians chapter 3 says, puts it this way, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Okay, all those things that want to make friends with the world. We need to put those things to death. Right? This is, this is not always fun and easy. Right? Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion. This is not passion for God. This is passion for the things of the world. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, we think because we don't bow down to an idol, we're not idol idolaters. He says just desiring what somebody else has is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. 
It's just like what happened with Israel, right? The wrath of God came on the old generation because they walked in those things. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, in Christ, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, the old self, the old man with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after it's the image of its creator. A great picture here of the old generation dying out and the new generation starting over, right? And, and for us to, to start over, to get a second chance, means that we must put to death the old man, the old flesh, the, the old desires that want to befriend um, the things of the world, right? And to put on instead the new things in Christ, uh, which he says in the book of Colossians, but we won't read, read on. But um, Third thing. Uh, they, they need to step out in faith. Uh, you may not see it, and the word faith is never mentioned here, but there's some interesting things in the genealogy and in the account that follows that are pictures of faith. And the first is this. Um, in the first census, it include, includes only the tribal heads. So you've got the Reubenites, the Simeonites, the uh, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Gad, right? In this one, it actually gets broke down into clan groups. So there's actually family divisions. Um, and, and the reason it explains for that is so that um, uh, Moses can divide the land. Right? Divide the land. Also in the, in the uh, genealogy, or the census, uh, there's a very unique um, and uh, different twist in, in verse 30, 32, 33. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, had no sons, but only daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. Right? This is kind of a, a unique. Okay, so he picks out one family out of all these clans, one specific family where the poor guy only had daughters. That's me. I only had daughters. Right? Uh, and that was a problem for for them because. Inheritance passed on to the sons. Right? That's how the law was set up. We read then in chapter 27, uh, then drew near the daughters of Zelope, Mr. Z, uh, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And the names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord and the company of Korah. But he died for his own sins. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan? Because he had no son. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. So Moses takes the case to the Lord, and the Lord says, yes, that's right. If there's no son, the land should pass on to the daughter. Um, so you know what's cool about this? The first generation couldn't even imagine being in the land, right? They, they didn't have enough faith to see themselves taking possession and actually living there. But what we see with the second generation is, is they believe this is going to happen. They're expecting it. And they start planning for it. 
And these daughters are thinking, hey, when we get there, we're not going to get anything because we don't have brothers. And our father's name is going to be forgotten. That's That's a huge step of faith for them. That they believe this is really going to happen. This is really going to happen. And they know it's uh, with confidence that it's their future. Um, second chance means stepping out with faith. Uh, expecting God's promises to come true. Last thing. Chapter 28. I'm sorry, chapter 27. Uh, a little scared Ted. Ted's going to be doing 28. Freak him out here. Chapter 20, uh, 27, verse 12. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you shall also be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at, at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Um, God says to Moses, and again, they're, they're, they're close, right? So he sends Moses to the top of a mountain where Moses can look into the promised land and see the land. Right? Uh, but God says, you are not going to be able to enter. Now you may think this does not sound very much like a second chance. right? Where is Moses' second chance? Um, well, God is a God of second chances. But the principle here is that um, sin has consequences. And when we sin, we miss out on the blessings of that moment. Okay? There was a time when, when Moses had the opportunity to prove his faithfulness and enter the land and he failed. Right? And there were permanent lasting consequences for that sin. Right? Second chances does not mean that God completely erased the wounds and damages and hurt that our sin creates. Right? When we do stupid things, it hurts people. It hurts us. And it disqualifies us from the blessings that God had for us at that moment. And forgiveness does not erase all of that automatically. The hurt that we cause other people, the broken relationships, the pain doesn't instantly just vanish like it never happened. Right? And for Moses, there were consequences to his sin. But, but, but God is not saying here, Moses, I'm done with you. Uh, go to the mountain and die. Right? He says when you, when you go up there and you look, you're, you're going to die. But that event doesn't actually happen until the end of Deuteronomy. There's like a whole lot of the Bible that's going to happen yet. And Moses uh, still acts and serves as God's chosen servant. He does have a second chance. Uh, and, and God still speaks to him, and, and he is still God's leader. Uh, and, but here's a second chance in action. We don't have time to go back to all the details of that story, but basically Moses acted uh, in his rebellion very selfishly. He was feeling sorry for himself. He was angry that the people were complaining. And he took it on himself instead of honoring God. He took it on himself to kind of solve the problem. And it was sin. right? And he was selfish. And he was not thinking about the people of Israel or God's glory. But notice what happens. After God tells him this, 
Moses doesn't say, that's just such a rip-off. Like, I've served you all these years and you can't let me go into the promised land. I want my money back, right? So Moses says, no. This is what he says. Um, he says, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. Moses is like, yeah, I'm leaving and that means I'm their leader and I'm worried that if I'm gone, they don't have a leader to shepherd them forward. So you see Moses here concerned about his people and caring about them. And he takes advantage of his second chance to look forward to build a better future for his people. To make sure the right leaders are in place. And God calls Joshua, a man filled with the Spirit, uh, and and anoints him, tells Moses to anoint him as leader. Uh, He uses that second chance not not for himself to bless others, to be an example, to care about uh, the future and what God has. Let's bow as we pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.